So we're, again, as Mark, Mark read a pretty good chunk. All right, so we're covering another big chunk of, of scripture. And maybe as you, as you read it, you kind of been like, why did he pair those two things together? Uh, why, why are we talking about the disciples being sent, shaking dust off their sandals, and then now going to like Herod executing John the Baptist? And like, you know, maybe to you, like, it seems like a strange, uh, strange two things to pair together. You know, like maybe wine and popcorn or something like that. You know, or I, I don't know, maybe people do that. But anyway, I'm just saying, it seems, like, it seems at first glance like an odd pairing. You know, I was reminded of, uh, I was reminded of, um, I don't know if anybody ever watched Monty Python's Flying Circus. Um, for, for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, just I'm not going to take the time to explain the reference. But all I could think of is as you read the passage, it's almost as if you can hear John Cleese saying, and now for something completely different. You know, like it just seems like the two just don't go together. And yet, what we find again is that we have a sandwich. You know, we talked two weeks ago about you know, the Markin sandwich, right, where um, we, we think we listed off favorite sandwiches and all of that, right? Here's another one. And this one might seem at first like an odd combination, you know, a, a strange sandwich. But it's one of those strange sandwiches that somehow you taste it and you go, ah, they do go together after all. All right? And so that's what we're going to be walking through this week. And actually next week, we're going to be kind of walking through it again. Um, so, so over kind of the next two weeks, we're going to be walking through this passage. Um, but next week, we're also going to add the feeding of the 5,000 into it. So, so yeah, it should be an interesting next couple of weeks. But, but just know uh, that we're going to be, we're going to be here for, for, uh, for a little while. All right, so this, this story is an interesting one, right? And maybe almost, I, I feel like at least, I don't know about you guys, but the middle section, <laughs> I suppose the meat of this sandwich sometimes can uh, maybe distract from the bread. Because that middle sandwich is, it's, it's not nice, right? On many levels, it's, it's a pretty, I don't, how, do you, how far do you push this metaphor? You can say like it's a pretty terrible inside of the sandwich. I, I don't know. Anyway, in any case, I think it's, when you really dig down to it, and, I, and I'm sorry guys, but when we really dig down into it, it's one of the most vile stories in the New Testament. Like, it's, it's just, it's terrible. What is every, like, the, all the layers that are going on in that middle section. And we'll get to that. We'll, get, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through all of that. But I find it interesting. See, Mark spends a lot of time telling us this story about John the Baptist. But you know what's interesting? All, you know, the other Gospels, like, you read about John the Baptist, right? Like, in, in sorry, in, the, in Luke and in Matthew, you read quite a bit about John the Baptist and, you know, how he came to be, you know, how he was born, who he was, what he did, all this kind of stuff. By verse 14 of chapter 1 in Mark, we've forgotten all about John. Like, he's not mentioned again until now. And all we really learn is that he went out preaching and he baptized Jesus, and that's about it. Right? So, so, so far, John has been a pretty bit part character within the Gospel of Mark. But now all of a sudden, we get this very long section that just seems to kind of be shoved into the middle of a story about Jesus sending his disciples out. So let's walk through that this morning. Let's walk through this story. But first, let's appreciate the bread. <laughs> let's appreciate the things on the outside of, of this story. Right? So as we start to walk through this, we find the disciples going out and proclaiming and demonstrating the kingdom of God. 
All right, so we're just, like I said, we're just kind of walking through, walking through this. Then Jesus, so it says, then Jesus went from village to village teaching the people, and he called his 12 disciples together and began sending them out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing for their journey except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He allowed them to wear sandals, but not to take a change of clothes. You think, well, thank goodness, at least they could wear shoes, right? But they weren't allowed to bring much of anything. And much has been uh, said about this passage. You know, you keep reading, it says, wherever you go, he said, stay in the same house until you leave town. But if any place refuses to welcome you or to listen to you, shake its dust from your feet as you leave to show that you have abandoned those people to their fate. Now, we'll stop there for a second. Much has been said about this passage. There have been people throughout history that have thought, you know, because of this passage, when I go out to tell people about Jesus, I should bring nothing with me and I should just purely rely on God to provide all my needs without ever, you know, without any preparation. I should just go, right? And there are other people that have just said, you know, and when I go into a place, if I preach the gospel and people don't immediately respond, off comes my sandal, I wag it at them and off I go. Here's what I'm going to say. I believe that God can provide for people. You know, there, uh, there have been famous missionaries throughout history that have done similar things and God has provided for them. All right, I think of, of China, uh, what is it, Inland China, Chinese Mission. Uh, sorry, this is what happens when I start talking off my head. Um, but one of the great missionaries to China did this very thing. He went to China. He didn't ask for support, but he just trusted that God would provide. And God did. And that's great. And I think God can do that. I just don't think that's the point that we're to take from this passage. And, and maybe, maybe sometimes it is right when you go into a place and you shared the gospel with people and they didn't want to listen to just say, to shake the dust off your feet and to walk out. But again, I'm not sure that should be our main takeaway from this passage. Like I, I actually just this week was, was thinking about this question. When is the right time to shake the dust off your feet. Like, when is the right time to do that? And, and to be honest, I, I, I couldn't think of like a really solid, like, this is exactly the time. I think there probably is a time sometimes when it's, when it's to say, like, you know what? I've done what I can for now. It's time to just back off, leave them alone, and, and let them be, right? There probably is a time for that. But even there, as I'm thinking about the situation, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact that, that Jesus is speaking, you know, he's being sent out, or he's sending the disciples out into a group of people who should have known better, <laughs> right? The people who would have had the first five books of the Bible memorized, the people who, who should have been, they were the religious people that Jesus is being, sending these people out to speak to. And if they don't want to listen to the message, they should know better. We got other things to do, keep moving. And here is where I think we get to the main point of this section. This is where I think is the real main point. The kingdom of God, the message of the kingdom of God is urgent. It's urgent. That's why they don't take much stuff. They can move a whole lot quicker if they're not carrying the whole kitchen sink with them. They're on a limited time, right? Think about it. Jesus had three years of teaching ministry. Jesus knows at this point, like his time is starting to wind down. Like he, there's not much time for him to teach his disciples, for him to, to train them to go. Things, they've got to move quickly and they've got to grow quickly. They don't have time to be patient because they need to come back then to Jesus and to learn. 
right? But, but oftentimes, there have been other people in other places who have gone and they've stayed for a very long time and planted seeds, and slowly but surely, things have sprouted up and grown. But, again, I think the point of this is that the message of the kingdom is urgent. It is urgently needed, and it should be urgently uh, spoken. So the moral of the story isn't uh, don't prepare or bring provision when you go to share the gospel. Rather, it's that there is an urgency to the message of the kingdom of God. It is what people desperately need, and they may not know they need it, but they desperately need it, whether they realize it or not. And for those of us who have heard the message and accepted the message, we have been given the task to share that message, right? It's their mission. It was the mission of the disciples that Jesus gave, and it's an extension of of Jesus' mission, right? And it's our mission too, because right, if we go to the Great Commission, which shows up at the end of Mark, but it's at the end of Matthew is where it's famous, right? Go into all the world, preaching the gospel, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, right? So it is, it is the mission that Jesus gives to the disciples, and it's the mission that Jesus gives to you and me as well, to go and to share the gospel with people. Right? And this doesn't mean that you have to somehow be a street preacher on a corner somewhere yelling at people. But it means that it is our job that if we really believe that something is desperately good news that people need to hear, it is our job to share that news with other people. Right? And we see them then. What do they do? They go out and they are, they are performing miracles. Right? They're, they're healing the sick. They're doing all these kinds of things sharing the, the gospel. So what does it say? Sorry, here we go. So the disciples went out telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and turn to God. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Who have we seen doing all of those things so far in, in our previous five chapters? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus has been doing all of these things. And now he gives them the authority and says, now you go and do it. But whose authority is it? Is it the disciples' authority that they're doing these things on? No. It's Jesus' authority. And here's one of the things. This is just kind of, kind of a side note. Because we see them, under Jesus' authority, going and casting out demons. Right? Sometimes we have this sort of, I think maybe Eastern philosophy has kind of made its way into, or Eastern, Eastern mysticism has made its way into our thinking. You know, the yin-yang was something that every kid drew in their... Uh, on their notebooks in school or whatever, you know, maybe you didn't go to the same school as me, um, but that was like a thing, you know, there was a time, you know, like, and maybe sometimes we can think of good and evil, like, you know, that somehow Satan is God's opposite or something like that. It's like, no, Jesus has complete authority and he says, hey, here, why don't you take some of that authority, go cast out the demons. And it's not like the demons go, hey, you can't do that to me. It's like, no, they obey. <laughs> Jesus is not the yin to evil's yang, Jesus is the ultimate authority. God is the ultimate authority, and he delegates that authority then to his people to go and to share the good news of the gospel, to go and to do. And I think that's really important. What we see here is we see doing and teaching go together. Right? Because we see at the end of, if we go to the end of verse 30 here, 
It says, the apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Doing and teaching go together. <laughs> you don't separate the two of them. And I think this has been a problem in the Western world, at least in, in, in kind of like Christendom. It's kind of this movement in one direction, either to be all about doing or all about teaching. And what we find, I think, in Jesus' commission to the disciples is it is not all about doing and it is not all about teaching. It's the, it's the coming together of the two of them. The kingdom of God brings, you know, we teach about what the kingdom is like and we live what the kingdom is like. We live, we bring, in a way, we bring the kingdom of God into the world wherever we go. As we live out the ethics and the life of the kingdom, we bring it with us and demonstrate to people, not just by our words and our teaching, but by our actions about what God is really like. If God truly is a God of justice and we believe that is good news, then it should lead us to do something about it. Right? If God really does care about the poor and the downtrodden, and we're going to say that that is good news about the kingdom that all are welcome, then as Luke taught a few weeks ago, we should probably do something about that. Right? And so it's not this either or, but it is a coming together, a teaching and a doing. Again, I pointed to the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And again, this goes all the way back to one of the reasons why we did that series, walking through like spiritual practices and things like that. It's like, this is how we become people who do the kingdom, who live the kingdom, who don't just say they believe it, but internalize it. It becomes who we are and what we love. And so the message then that they are teaching, the message that they are proclaiming, Mark tells us, is that they went out telling everyone to repent of their sins and to turn to God. Now, your, past, your Bible probably, if you're not using the New Living, just says to repent. All right, so this is where the New Living translation, sometimes it, takes, it becomes a little more on the paraphrase side. Um, <clears throat> it's not always bad. Like, it's not, like this, is, this is, I think, a good explanation of what, what it means in a biblical way to repent. It is to turn from sin and to turn towards God. Um, so they've added a little bit there. I think it's probably helpful. Um, in this place, but, but just know when, when your Bible does say things like to repent, that is what it's talking about. It's talking about um, leaving behind sin and turning towards God and his kingdom. It's a, it's a reorientation. Now, I know so far we've kind of been walking through the text. I've been doing more teaching, but here's for those of you who are note takers. Um, here, I just want to walk through this really, really quickly because we start saying things when we start using words like sin. Those are words that, and, and again, I know I've taught on this many times, but I think it bears repeating over and over until we all get it burned into our brains and we never forget it because we live in a culture that throws around the word sin as if like we don't even know, like it's almost lost its definition. What is sin? Is it something that's fun? Is it something that's bad? Is it, is it breaking the rules? Is it doing all these things? Here's how the Bible talks about sin. The three words that it uses in the Greek for sin, and then kind of, um, they have the Hebrew there as well. Um, the three ways that the Bible talks about sin. And so the Bible sees sin as law-breaking. Sure, it's breaking the rules. It sees sin as idolatry, worshiping anything other than God. It sees sin uh, as a force, even. The Bible, Paul talks about like, you know, sin even in a way is like a force, 
of evil at work in the world. Think of like Peter talking about sin being like, you know, the devil being like a lion ready to devour. Or uh, in, in Genesis, you have the same sort of thing. In Genesis chapter 4, uh, you find in the story of Cain and Abel, uh, God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. Right? So we, we get this idea of like sin as a force in the world. But here's the three words, and I think these are helpful to understand, to unpack, because I think as we get ready, as we see the message that, they're, that the, uh, the disciples, are, that Jesus calls them to proclaim, I want us to think about these definitions of sin then as we read the story uh, of Herod and Herodias and, and John the Baptist. Okay, so the first word is, is hamartia, right? And that's probably the most common word uh, used for sin. Uh, in Hebrew, it's kata. Um, you got to get that kata or whatever. I can't do it. I'm, if, if I was a German speaker, maybe I could do it. But uh, anyway, it's a word. It, it usually is translated sin, and it means missing the mark, right? And, and we're walking through this really quickly because, again, this isn't the first time we've done it, but think again of somebody pulling back a bow, shooting at the target, and hitting a bullseye, Right? That's, that's like hitting the mark, okay? Getting the next row out, you know, the next circle out from the bullseye, that's missing the mark. You have hamartiaed at that point. You've missed the mark. The bullseye is the mark, right? So it is this idea, uh, uh, yeah, the second place is the first loser. Um, so what is the mark we miss? The mark that we miss is true humanness. It's being the human that God created us to be, to living in perfect relationship with him living in, in peace, right? That's something we've talked about, again, ad, ad, ad nauseum, and I will continue to say that the Bible's vision of peace is peace in every direction. It's peace with God that leads to peace with myself, that leads to peace with other people, that leads to peace and, and brings peace in the world and with creation, okay? So this kind of sin means going against what God says is the way to live that is truly human. All right, so the next one, if we're moving really quickly, is, is paraptoma, and it's, it's translated transgression. Now, in, in the Hebrew, it's pasha, um, but it really, it literally means, uh, it can be translated transgression, rebellion, trespass, like that's the idea. It's, it's rebellion. It is, it is doing what you know, not, not doing what you know you should do, and doing what you want to do instead. It's the violation of a relationship of trust with other people. Okay, so that's sin in the Bible's eyes. Like, like betrayal is sin, right? In, in the Bible's, in the way the Bible speaks about, about sin. Violating a relationship of trust with others or a covenant with others. This is what Paul says in Romans 5 that Adam, Adam did when he sinned. He violated the relationship, the covenant between him and God that when he sinned, he, sorry, when he Paraptomad or Peshad. Everything was, everything was ruined. <laughs> they violated the relationship. And finally, the last word is, is uh, anomia or avon in, in Hebrew. And it means iniquity, guilt, or sin. Okay, it can be translated any of those ways. And it literally means to bend out of shape. Right? To bend out of shape. So it can be crooked behavior, which I, have, which I have here, the idea of like crooked behavior, injustice, exploitation, suffering, or, or even suffering the consequences of sin. So you can even, you know, you can kind of be uh, anomiaed against, right? Oftentimes there are serious consequences for sin. 
I mean, right, some of you who have been sinned against deeply live with the pain and the suffering that was brought by that person who, who uh, you know, anomiaed against you. They sinned against you. They betrayed you. They, they, by their crooked behavior or their injustice or their exploitation, they went against you. Right? So hopefully when we say that the disciples then went about preaching uh, or proclaiming, telling everyone they met to repent, and again, that's to repent from sin and towards God, we get an idea of what they're actually saying when they say that you should repent. And again, just to clarify the biblical word, the idea of repentance. Okay? So we're repenting from sin, from iniquity, from injustice, from rebellion, from trespass, from transgression, from missing the mark, from you know, disobeying God. All of those things, we're repenting of them. So repenting means to turn. Literally, mean, it means to reorient your life, to turn around and to go a different direction. You're on one path and you say, I am going in the wrong direction. This is not going to take me where I want to go, so I'm going to change onto the right path. That is repentance. That's the picture of repentance. It's saying, I want to go into Galway City and then headed towards Clifton and going, whoops, I've made a terrible mistake, turning around and driving back in the right direction. Okay? So when the, when the disciples here are going out and saying, you need to repent, they are literally saying you need to turn from the direction your life is headed and go in the right direction. And this message is urgent, right? And you can see then, if that's really what sin does, if that's really the way sin is, if it, if it brings about crooked behavior, if it violates relationships, if it goes against how we were created, you could see why this message would be urgent to say, no, this way is destructive. Don't go this way. And instead, turn towards a better way, a way to live out the way you were created to be. And that is to live. You were created to live in the kingdom of God, one of justice, one of righteousness, right? The Psalms say righteousness and justice are the foundation of your ways. Speaking about God, Psalm 89, 14. That that is the way of the kingdom, that we not only tell people to repent from the ways that they've been going, but repent to something so much better. So this is the message they were going about proclaiming, both in how they, what they did and in what they said. And this is our mission, too. But, just like John and just like Jesus, the disciples and us should not be surprised when this message is rejected. And I think this is one of the reasons these stories are linked. Some people are going to see the fruit of the kingdom and say, that is good news. That's what I've been looking for. That's what I need. But there's plenty of other people who are going to look at the message of the kingdom and say, no, thank you. I like what I'm doing very much. I'd rather not. And they may do that very politely, but they may not. And in fact, in the next story, we see it's not very polite. <laughs> what happens? And so... While some people see the fruit and catch the vision, others will be stuck in their structures of, of yearning for success at all costs or happiness and, and instant gratification rather than seeing the beauty, beholding the beauty 
of the kingdom of God. And we can expect as we share that message with people, it may not always be taken so friendly. People may not appreciate the message. Now, it doesn't mean you have to say it in a way that will be sure that they don't appreciate it, right? Instead, we should present the beauty of the gospel and invite people into that, right? But people may not appreciate it. And now for something completely different, (laughs) right? Or maybe not so different. We find this story. So directly after they have been proclaiming the message, we find this story about the death of John the Baptist. Now again, as I said, this is a pretty, pretty sick story, to be honest with you. A couple of more facts of information. Uh, Mark gives us some of the information. So we find Herod Antipas, who is not Herod the Great, okay? There's a lot of Herods, and it gets really confusing, right? Because Herod the Great thought he was pretty great, and he named a couple of his kids Herod. Um, <laughs> and so, like, so you find even more than one Herod living around Jesus' time, right? So in any case... This is the Herod that has control over Galilee. So when Herod the Great died, his kingdom was divided up basically between his kids. Okay? And so the area around Galilee is this guy, Herod Antipas. Okay? And then there's another guy mentioned in the story, Philip. Right? So he gets a chunk of the kingdom. Um, and then uh, there's, there's, I can't remember the names of the, I think it's another Herod, Herod Tetrarch, I think. Any, anyway, there's, don't quote me on that, but there's another Herod uh, in there as well. In any case... Right, so we've got a kingdom that's, that's been divided up, okay? And, and Herod, at one point, Herod Antipas, went to his brother Philip's house, saw his wife, thought she was pretty hot, and kind of said, I love you. Please marry me. Now, he was more powerful than Philip. And so, as Josephus would say, uh, Herodias took a look at Herod and said, life could be a little bit better with you than it is with Philip, so, okay, sure. And that was it. Marriage dissolved, and off she goes to live with Herod, the, Herod, the, uh, Herod Antipas. There we go. So there's your backstory. Now, where things take another turn is, right, Herodias has a daughter. Okay? But this daughter somehow is also his like, half-niece, right? So you got to think about that, right? Because she has a kid with his brother. Like, so this is like his stepdaughter slash half-niece. Like, this is like makes Jeremy Kyle seem like child's play, right? Okay, like, I mean, they're opening, like, they need an envelope. Like, who does this kid belong to? You know, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, tests, all that, whatever. Anyway, all that to say, this is like a disgusting mess that's happening. And what we find is power and exploitation and, like, greed and, like, just disgusting sexual deviance Like, all of that going on in one story. Now, before we go, like, I want to make some application on that about the world in which we live. Okay, because I think there's actually a lot of application to be made here about the world in which we live. But before we do that, I just kind of want to say something that, like, when I I was reading this story, too, it, it was really, at first, it was all about the world, and this is how they live, and this is how they think, and this is what they do. And then I started thinking, you know, the church, the church has been guilty of a lot of this as well. A lot of, you know, there's been a lot of stuff recently that for those of us who, are, who, are, who 
called Jesus Lord, have had to look at and just say, how could this happen? How could this happen? And I'm not singling out one, one, one denomination. There's been a lot of stuff when people have gotten more concerned about power and about glory and about reputation or taking and seeing something they want and wanting to take it. It doesn't matter whether it's been people in church or whether it's been people out of church. People have been guilty of doing exactly what Herod Antipas says. And I, and I understand, like, for some of you, I, I don't know all of your history or the things that you've been through. Maybe this story, you read it and, you like, it really bothers you. Maybe, maybe it brings up things that are too close to you want to talk about. Maybe it's happened in church. You know, maybe even there. Like, I, there are plenty of people who have suffered at the hands of the church. And I think we need to recognize, though, and, and here's where I want to make the distinction. It's just because somebody in a position of leadership says something or does something does not mean that Jesus is like, hey, fine, go ahead. You, you go for it. You know, like... There's been plenty of people in churches and positions of power that have abused that power in a way that is similar to Herod. And I mourn at that. Because when I read the, about Jesus, he's completely different. And we're going to talk about this next week, but his kingdom looks nothing like Herod's. It pales, like Herod's kingdom pales in comparison to Jesus's in its beauty, in its grandeur, and in every way. And so often people in positions of power, whether it's in the church or outside the church, have chosen to go the way of Herod rather than the way of Jesus. And that is never okay. And so if, like, if this is something you have ever struggled with, like even just knowing it exists and having problems with it, if this is something that you've ever experienced, I'm sorry. And the way of Herod is not the way of Jesus. Now, that's my, my side note on this as we get into the story. As I said, this, this message as we get into kind of the, sand, the inside of the sandwich here is that this message is going to be rejected, particularly by people in power. John's death here is more than just filler between the sending out and the return of the disciples but it helps us to understand, in a way, the bun of the sandwich. The story shows us the response of the powers to a rival kingdom. And I think it foreshadows the suffering that comes to God's messengers. All right, so let's, let's just run through this quickly. You know, I left up the definitions of sin on purpose. And the reason I did is because I think we see all three of these happening in the story. Every single one of them, right? Breaking God's law, boy, he could check that off over and over and over in this list. <laughs> um, you know, I don't think I need to break that down for you too much. I mean, we can just say, for one, don't have, an, don't have another man's wife. There you go. Don't take your brother's wife. That's actually in Leviticus. So right there. We'll just stop there. We'll leave it at there. So we know at least, at the very least, he's, he's broken, the, broken the first one. He's in Hamartia. How about Paraptoma? We see that all over the story, right? Because if there's one person a child should be able to trust, it is their parent. Can't trust their parents. Talk about transgressing a relationship. The way her mother uses her for her own ends and her own means is disgusting. 
How about iniquity, an anomia, to bend out of shape, crooked behavior? Again, I probably don't need to go. I, we can see that pretty clearly in the story. There's a lot of crooked behavior going on here. It's terrible. And just to clarify again, because it, it just says that she came and danced for him. That's not just a, you know, it's not an Irish dance or something like that, okay? This is, it's seedy, right? It's, uh, you can fill in the blanks there. We'll keep moving on. And so we see all three definitions of sin being played out in this passage. And we learn then that this message of repentance, this message of turning from the way of life that we have been, you know, that we have been traveling, is not easy to turn from. And when we hear the message, what is our first reaction? I think oftentimes that first reaction is going like, how dare you? Don't you tell me what to do. I'm happy doing what I'm doing. Thank you very much. It's very defensive, right? And that seems to be like where Herod's at. I mean, like he hears the message. He's like, I don't like it, yet I kind of like it, yet I'm not sure how I feel. Like he's like, yeah. Maybe some of us feel that tension where we're torn between the two, where we feel like there's something convicting about what I'm being told, yet I'm not sure I actually want to do anything about it. I'm pretty happy the way things are. So I'll come, I'll hear the message, I'll feel, con I'll feel conflicted, and then by Monday it'll have gone away, and I can just go back to doing what I want to do. Uh, you know, like I can lock it away and keep it until I want to hear it again. Right? This message is unpopular with those who stand a lot to lose. And I think, you know, we've got, you know, Blake and, and Luke both wearing their shirts with the parable of the kingdom of the seeds here. And if we think back to that, that sermon, right, we think about how maybe Herod is kind of like the seed on rocky soil. Because it says he enjoys hearing the message. When he hears it, he walks away, you know, he walks out going, good sermon, John. You know, like, and, and out he goes. And then he's, at the same time, he's like, I really didn't like that. You know, he's, he's, he's torn. He, he, he kind of likes what he's hearing, but yet he doesn't. Uh, Herod's like the rocky soil. He heard the message with joy, but it was entirely unwilling to make any changes in his life because it would have cost him his power and it would have cost him his lifestyle. And then we have Herodias. I feel like she's kind of like, uh, you know, the seed that falls on the footpath. The birds come and they immediately eat up that seed. When she hears it, she doesn't feel any conviction. She just feels angry. And she wants to silence him because the message that John is preaching of repentance could get in the way of everything she's ever dreamed of, all she's been working towards. She, you know, John doesn't know how much she's given up to get where she is. What she's done to get where she is. John has no idea. And this message then causes her who is a social climber, willing to sacrifice even her own daughter to secure her hold on power, it causes her to do something extreme. I think this story, in a way, lifts the lid on the glamorous life of getting whatever you want. I think our culture kind of pushes away of life that says, you know what, the dream, the ideal, is being able to just get whatever you want. Easy everything, instant everything, having everything you want. That's the dream, isn't it? I make enough money to be able to buy whatever I want, have enough holiday time to be able to do all the hobbies and the things I want. You know, it's like, forget responsibility, 
The dream is to be able to do whatever you want. And these alternate visions of success that go against the kingdom, I think haven't changed that much over time. This is exactly the same thing I think we see with Herod. And it lifts the lid on that because there's this thin veneer that goes over the top of that sort of thinking that says, the dream is that you should be able to have whatever you want. They sell you this kind of clean, neat, and tidy vision of life that just looks amazing. But what you find underneath is a nasty underbelly of exploitation, a nasty underbelly of using people to get whatever you want, a nasty underbelly of of destroying, whether it's the environment or other people or anything else, even there, you know, like, hey, using, using your own power or abilities to get ahead of somebody else. This, this dark kind of underbelly of selfishness and exploitation and greed. And by the way, just history reference, Herod eventually, this all catches up to him and he loses everything and ends up exiled. Because he wants to call himself a king, he wants more power, he gets all upset when he doesn't get a promotion like he thinks he should, and somebody else got it, and then Caesar just says, fine, that's it, see ya, you can go be exiled. And so, like I said, this story, I think, lifts the lid on the glamorous life of getting whatever we want. And so I think we live in a culture that stands a lot to lose by the message of the gospel. It stands a lot to lose because there's a lot of us, you know, particularly those of us who live in the developed world who live pretty nicely. We live pretty comfortably. And for the most part, we can get whatever we want whenever we want it. Right? Many of us live that way that for the most part, we can do whatever we want. And so in our culture, there's a lot to lose when we start saying, no, actually, God's kingdom vision of justice and mercy and grace and kindness a God who's slow to anger and abounding in love, not just for me, but for everybody. There's a lot to lose there when we, if we were to accept that. And yet the reality is what so many people can't see, what Herod and Herodias can't see as John proclaims this message to them, is that there's infinitely more to gain. What Jesus will later say, by losing your life, you gain the world. What good is it for a man to forfeit his soul? We live in a culture that stands to lose a lot and yet everything to gain. It's easy to look past Herod and Herodias as those kind of people and fail to see how in reality they are a mirror that shows us what my kind of people are often like. They're controlled by their desires and their loves, not rational thought. Often so are you and me. Herod and Herodias, I think, would fit well in our culture. They're ambitious. They're opportunistic. They're narcissistic. They're movers and shakers. They live by the motto, be true to yourself. (laughs) Right? Do whatever feels good in the moment. You do you. Follow your heart. However (laughs) However you want to articulate that vision of our culture. And they have the power and the money to do mostly what they want. And so I think the ideal in our world really is not that much different than saying, live like Herod. (laughs) 
doing whatever makes you immediately happy and get rid of anyone in your life who might suggest you're doing something wrong. And this is where we find in our story. Herod immediately perceives Jesus as a threat to his kingdom because he killed John the Baptist (laughs) and now he thinks John the Baptist has come back because the message is pretty similar. And so I think there's this question that is begged here. And the first one is this. How do I respond when the kingdom I have built for myself comes into conflict with God's kingdom? Because most of us live to a certain degree or another like we are kings of our own life, like, right? Or queens, you know, depending on... Uh, yeah, we, we live as if we are the rulers of our own life, the commanders of our destiny, as William Henley put it. Invictus. You know, like, we live like that. That's admired in our culture. That's the way you should be. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You are the king of your own life. So when another king comes in and says, actually, the way you're living isn't pretty great. Maybe you should live the way I say, and it'll be better for you. We go, oh, hold on. You're not the king. I'm the king. Right? I think that's often, even if it's not what we say, even if it's not, not what we say with our mouths that we believe, or even think with our heads that we believe, if you look at your actions and the way that your actions overflow from your heart, you can see that sometimes there is a, there is a war raging inside of us. <laughs> right? And I think that's a reality for most of us. I stand up here not immune to this. And so Herod and Herodias seek to silence the voice of opposition. And at a personal level, I was thinking about this. At a personal level, maybe I do the same sometimes. Right? When I want to do something, and maybe I feel conviction from the Spirit, I kind of just push it out of the way. Go away. Maybe I wouldn't say I execute it, but I ignore it. And in so doing, the Bible tells us we grieve the Spirit. That's the way you grieve the Spirit. By treating the Spirit in a similar way to the way Herod treated John the Baptist. And so the question, next question then is this. What is my reaction to the kingdom? Repentance or revenge? When I am confronted with the places where my life does not match up to the kingdom of God, what is my reaction? Is it the message, do I listen to the message of Jesus that says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or John the Baptist says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, or do I act out in revenge? We see in the story two kingdoms coming into conflict. So we kind of bring this together. This story, I think, helps us to see that there is a conflict in kingdoms. The disciples came sharing a kingdom. And as they shared the kingdom, Jesus even said, you're going to come into some conflict. Right? That's the whole thing. Shake the dust off your sandals, right? People don't want to listen. They want to be opposed to it. They want to go against you. Okay, well, that's it. You can, you know, like, he's serious. Time is too urgent. Keep moving. There are people who want to hear the message, right? It's this implicit kind of idea that there's going to be opposition. And then we read the story of, of John the Baptist and Herod, and we see opposition, great opposition. We see in the story two kingdoms coming into conflict. But I think, too, we see that this story previews another confrontation. A confrontation between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. 
one that would also involve a death. Just as John was handed over, so we read, the last thing we read about John the Baptist before this story in Mark is in chapter 1, verse 14, where it says that John was handed over to, uh, to prison, like he was taken into prison. He was arrested. Just as John was handed over, so Jesus will be handed over later in our story. Just as John is executed by a reluctant political ruler at the instigation of a conniving individual who plotted his death behind the scenes, so too will Jesus. Just as Herodias seized an opportune time to carry out her evil plan, so too will Judas. And he'll betray Jesus to the high priest. Just as Herod was caught off guard by the response to his reckless offer, so Pilate will be surprised when he offers up Barabbas and the people say no. The violent and shameful death of John, I think, points us to the violent and shameful death of Jesus. Both men died at the hands of injustice, proclaiming the kingdom of God. But the good news is there's a difference, because when John died, that was it. His head didn't come back on. His disciples went out and buried him, it says. All right, let's go to the... They came to get his body, and they buried it in a tomb. But nowhere does it say three days later he rose again. But when we come to the story of Jesus, that's different. This is where the stories diverge. We find that Jesus, three days later, rose again. And we are told that in, that, in his death and in his resurrection, sin, rebellion, iniquity, crooked behavior, all of that, the force that is sin was defeated in the cross and in the resurrection. That Jesus' death was the once-for-all sacrifice, the author of Hebrews will tell us, is the once-for-all sacrifice that says, though so often there is con- I am conflicted in my life between who I want to be and who I am. So often I, I find myself not in repentance but in revenge. So often I find my heart far from God. Jesus came and he paid the price for my sin, for my iniquity, for my transgressions, for my guilt, for my rebellion. Jesus paid the price for that. And when he rose again, he stood victorious over sin and over death. Death could not hold Jesus. The powers do their worst to try and snuff out John and subsequently Jesus. But Jesus could not be held by death. He conquered the powers not through violence, but he conquered them through sacrifice. And he made a way for us to be forgiven of our rebellion and iniquity and to find peace in the kingdom of God. So as we finish, let's just return here for a moment to the message of the disciples. Repent. I know I sound like a fire and brimstone preacher. If I had said that a little more angry, right? Repent! Like, but 
But guys, this is the message of the kingdom. And instead of being some fiery, angry message, it is a good news message to repent. Because we repent not from one good offer to another. We repent towards a kingdom of peace that is radically different and stands opposed to the status quo of our world of violence. Because the gospel message is beautiful. It's not just one message among many or one way of life among others. It is the way of life. It is beautiful. It rings truer and better than any other message we could ever buy, than any other direction we could ever go. The gospel, the good news of Jesus is better. Sin is a destructive tsunami. We see it in this story. There are, there are perpetrators, there are victims. We see the tsunami of sin. It destroys peace with God. It destroys peace with myself. It destroys peace with others and with the world. And so repentance then is a key part of becoming citizens of God's kingdom. I renounce my citizenship to other kingdoms, to other visions of flourishing, to other ways of life. Because there's no dual citizenship in the kingdom of God. You choose which one you want to be a part of. And so I renounce my citizenship to other kingdoms and my loyalty to other kings. And I turn and reorient my life. I reset my imagination. I recalibrate my loves, however you want to put that, and turn towards Jesus. And that's what we're invited into. That's what we're invited to. A kingdom of peace that though it is costly, it's worth giving up everything we could ever give up. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father.